Hey, welcome to the Musea Podcast. My name is Michael Howard. I'm the founder and CEO of Musea. Uh, this episode, I had a conversation with Maggie Fisher, and we talked a lot about business and contracts and legal stuff. She is a super talented uh, wedding photographer. She has an associate a wedding photography brand as well. And she's a lawyer, so she does a ton of stuff. She's extremely smart, extremely hardworking. Uh, we go over uh, kind of common contract issues, legal um, snafus that people get themselves maybe into, copyright issues, and a bunch of stuff like that. So uh, it's a bunch of um, legal uh, topics we touch on, uh, but it's super important for everybody to have uh, really great contracts and to really have the legal uh, business side of their business uh, all buttoned down. And so this episode, we go over a lot of topics like that. So make sure to visit her store at uh, theartistlawyer.com and you can find some extremely helpful templates for contracts to get you started and to protect yourself. Uh, thank you so much for listening as always, and I hope you enjoy uh, our conversation. Hi, I'm Maggie Fisher. I am a lawyer and a photographer, and I'm the founder of The Artist Lawyer. Tell me about your history about if you got into photography first or if you got into law first. Yeah, so I started off um, as a photographer. I picked up a camera in high school. I loved photography, but I always wanted to be an attorney. I grew up in the courtroom. My mom was a judge, and we had a lot of family members who were politicians. Um, so I remember being a kid and, you know, hiding underneath my mom's robe and like playing with her gavel and knowing that that was something I wanted to do. Um, so I did mock trial in high school. I studied political science, and um, all at the same time, I, my photography passion started to unravel as well. So I started photographing friends in high school and um, in college. I started to photograph a few weddings here and there. Um, I did a project on homelessness with my um, philanthropy teacher and we did a a big um, nonprofit like giving back um, event. And that kind of gave me my love for still, for telling stories. Um, I started to travel and I went to West Africa. I went to Equatorial Guinea where photography is actually illegal. And I realized how much I loved photography at the time. And it was right before I went to law school. Um, and both of these paths at the same time, they were just, both passions were growing. Both, um, both of the things that I loved were, you know, go to law school, continue taking photos and it really, you know, I, I went down both paths. I grew my photography career. Um, we have a large studio now with about 12 photographers on our team. We have over 100 weddings this year between my husband and I and all of our associate photographers. Um, and it all came to a point at the end of law school when I had a position at a um, corporate law firm and they wanted me to give up photography. So I had to make that decision and choose to, um, I ended up choosing to go off on my own and start my own small law firm and um, legal practice, helping other artists and creatives. But both both have been this like passion that I, it's it's very 50-50. <laughs> so my, fir my first thought is like, how the heck do you do that? Because it seems it's hard enough to grow a photography business in, in today's day and age. Um, let alone going to 
law, like learning law and learn, law school and all that, it feels like, do you just not watch TV or anything? <laughs> I don't watch TV. I mean, you okay. know, I, I did just get sucked into Squid Games. So that, that was a whole, <laughs> right. <laughs> how, to, how to watch that. Um, but I, I don't watch TV and I, I don't know. I'm very, um, I mean, I think for all entrepreneurs, like your business is your baby and what do you do what you love? They say you don't work. <laughs> you, know, you never work a day in your life, but you know, I, I don't know. I've, I've just always loved, I loved both. Like I loved law school. I loved reading and I loved all of like the materials. My brain always worked in that way. I was always interested in law and um, just like analyzing and, you know, logical explanations. I always, always loved that. Um, but I always loved photography too. And it just, it just doesn't feel like work to me. I'm, I'm happy staying up till, you know, last night I stayed up till three in the morning <laughs> doing work and I, I can't, like, I don't, compl- I don't know. I don't complain about it. I love it. I love, you know, I love what I do. So no burnout. You've never had burnout on anything. <laughs> I mean, I think that we're all feeling burnout this year yeah. because of how the seasons unraveled. And I think what is causing some of that burnout is this like tension that's in the air, I feel like with clients and mm-hmm. I don't know, just everyone I talk to, legal clients, wedding clients, like everybody has this like, I don't know, this year I think has been difficult for everybody and everybody has like higher expectations. And um, I think it's more like people burnout than work burnout. Like, I'm, like I've, I've dealt with so many people this year that I'm ready for, I'm ready for winter and a retreat to Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah. I think everybody's just tired. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So are you with your law when you went out on your own for that? I'm assuming you just, after you left the corporate thing, you went just straight into building your site for wedding portrait photographers and helping them with their contracts and things. I finished law school and I got married shortly after. So I waited to take the bar. I started an appellate clerkship. So I worked for a judge, which for a year, which was super interesting because he was, um, it was at the appellate level. So I was seeing all of the cases that came back because somebody was appealing on the merits. And um, it was really interesting to see how he worked, how he made his decisions and to get to see such a broad range of cases And I had an offer after that year, I had delayed it to start at a corporate firm, which was my dream firm to work at. It's, you know, if I was going to work at a firm, like this was the one, Um, you know, I really loved the people. I loved the workplace. I loved what they did. I was super excited to work with them. Um, But of course, you know, going in to a corporate firm, they want to know that like they are my priority. And if I have a big case on the weekend, I'm not going to be distracted by a wedding. And you know, you know, if you're contracting with a client, you can't just pass, pass it off to your associate team. And that's, I think what they were expecting me to do. Um, and I, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't want to give up the business that I had built. So I took a break for about like three months and focused, I think it was like September, I just focused on our weddings for the season and I missed law and I had for so long wondered like, how do I combine these passions? How do I merge these two crafts together? And I came up with the artist lawyer. I think I had been reviewing a few friends contracts that they had purchased from other template shops online. 
and they had had some issues. I had found some things that were missing and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to put these contracts out there. So I made a few for photographers, videographers, florists, hair and makeup artists. And my approach, as I'm sure, you know, we've worked together, I'm sure you've seen is I like to be very thorough. I want to put it all out on the table. Um, just really, really go into like all the depth and all the detail, especially for the creative type where there's so much ambiguity and discretion and how we run our business, how we operate, what, what the expectations are, the processes. Um, I think it's really important to put all of that out there on the table for clients and even people outside of our industry who may be interpreting our contracts, who may not understand why we how we operate or why retainers are non-refundable. Um, and it's it's been really interesting. Like to that point, I've been booking a lot of attorneys as wedding clients recently. Over, over Since launching the Artist Lawyer over the last year, I've booked so many more legal clients and wedding planners bring their lawyer clients to me to book me. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I didn't know how this was going to go, but it's actually going really well. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So yeah, full disclosure, uh, here at Musea, we've been working with Maggie on a specific contract that we're, um, wrapping up and she's been incredibly amazing and, and thorough and detailed. <laughs> and so, uh, she's been a pleasure to work with. So, uh, we're definitely glad to have her on the podcast and everybody else get to kind of know her, um, uh, that we've kind of known privately for the last like six weeks. So, um, yeah. Um, I would love to dive into some topics of what we you know, different things with wedding portrait photographers with contracts and just some maybe common misperceptions or things, just trouble spots and things like that. Um, Cause I think it's one of the things I'm sure you bump into with creatives all the time. They don't like dealing with this stuff mm-hmm. or they don't know how to deal with it mm-hmm. or they just have zero confidence in it mm-hmm. <laughs> moving forward until they get themselves in a situation and like, gosh, I wish I had that tightened up, you know, totally. Already. Um, and they have like some hard lessons to learn, you know, potentially <laughs> that they just never repeat again after that. But um, we'd love to uh, know maybe what are some like common, just off the top of your head, com- some common issues you find photographers um, make uh, with their contracts when they bring bring a contract to you. So if they, they already have a contract, they bring something to you. What are some of the common things that you're like, ah, oh, this definitely needs to revise or yeah. you're just missing this completely? Yeah. A few of the big things that I see, I mean, I like to start with the foundations and I think a lot of creatives don't want to think about legal or, you know, the business side of things. They want to focus on their art because that's what they love to do. And at a certain point, you're an artist, you're creating and you're like, oh, I have to form an LLC or I have to start paying taxes. And and all of a sudden it, it becomes this business and you probably started off as just an artist who, um, you know, just were, you were in this to do what you love to do. And then you get bogged down with wearing all these other hats. And um, I think some of the basics that I see is, you know, not taking the, taking what has become a business seriously and forming a separate legal entity and, you know, creating that separate business bank account, getting insurance. You know, even I had um, an artist recently who does commissions solely for gallery work come to me and ask why they needed an insurance policy. And 
okay, so you've created like tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of paintings that are in a gallery. What happens if that catches fire, if it gets stolen or it gets damaged? So like everybody, you might not think that you need these legal protections or professional protections in place. Um, and then of course it gets to the client contract. You, you might not think that you need all of that. And then it's too late. And, you know, these, they're preventative measures that, you know, protect your business, protect the time and the energy and all the work that you put into getting to where you are and building from there. Um, so I think the, the things I see the most are, you know, not taking it seriously, forming those, those separate, those professional, um, organizational pieces of the business. Mm. Um, when it comes to the contract, not purchasing a contract or working with a lawyer for the contract. There's a lot of marketplaces online or friends that will give you a contract template. And, you know, if you're getting your contract template off of Etsy, it's probably not serving you well. And, um, you know, they're not going to be held to the same ethical standard as an attorney will. So, of course, like putting that contract in place, but then also making sure that it's either attorney drafted or attorney approved. As far as like aspects of the contract, um, I think something that I, I like to do is really think through different situations. So um, for like destination wedding photographers right now during COVID, travel warranties when you may be forced to quarantine or you may get stuck, who's responsible for those costs and those fees? If if the client is expecting you and asking you to travel, should and do those fees fall on the client if you get stuck quarantining in the country that they've paid you to travel to for two weeks or and then you have to buy another flight home like where how do those things work and unfortunately that's the world that we're living in right now that we have to think through these different situations and how our contract covers them and I'm always of the mindset that it's just better to be upfront have it all out on the table very clear cut and not ambiguous um, so the client is aware of the risks and like what they're signing on for and that you're legally protected no matter what the circumstances might unfold. And sometimes they don't happen like nine times out of 10. You have a good client, you have a good, good project or a good relationship. But the one time it does, it's like, you know, you just want to make sure you have that in place. Kind of tying into that, then what would be some advice you would have for, um, maybe like cancellation issues within contracts. I mean, it seems like possibly with COVID, like you're saying that probably increased, that's kind of increased lately. Um, For sure. What are some general, like like, people just need to have some sort of protection in place or or do you have two cancellation, two cancellation clauses where it's like just a general thing and then like a COVID like separate one? Yeah. So I, I get asked this a lot. Um, I don't recommend having a COVID specific clause cancellation clause unless a client requests it. Um, if a client requests that you add in this language around like what happens if your wedding is affected by COVID in 2023 and you want to have a more flexible carve out in your contract to book the client, sure, add that in um, as long as you're comfortable with it. But generally speaking, your contract should cover cancellation and force majeure policies more generally speaking. Um, so whatever your your policy may be, it, you don't want it to necessarily just be COVID specific unless it's like a more gentle carve out in order to book a, a client. 
Um, best practices is, you know, of course, making sure your contract's up to date, that it's going to flush out the way that you want it to, should something come up, should these clients that we're now looking for 2022 and 2023 have to deal with COVID, it's, which is no longer a force majeure issue. It's no longer unforeseeable. These are things that our current clients are thinking about when they are booking us. Um, but outside of that, cancellations, generally speaking, you know, of course, you want to make sure your clients are signing a cancellation contract um, and outlining that they're releasing you from the date. If you are processing a refund, um, you know, outlining all of that in a cancellation or termination agreement. Um, I just recent, I had a call this morning with a client of mine who processed a refund for somebody who complained about their work prior to us talking and did not have the client sign a termination agreement. So that's something where when you are, when you are, when those situations, unfortunately, you know, if they do come up and you're in a situation where you need to refund somebody, you definitely want to make sure you're having a termination agreement signed. Um, you can build confidentiality in there or non-disclosure so that they're no, you know, if you're sending them a refund, they you don't want them to go and write a bad review or talk ill of you if you are meeting in the middle and compromising. Um, so those are some of the things that you just you want to think about if cancellation comes up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and this would be cancellation for like if you, like a photographer gets sick or something happens with you or the wedding client, like they just even just break it off like two weeks before and you've like been holding this date for a year. <laughs> you know, Which is, like what, that's happened. What happens? Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> happened a lot to me this this year we had a couple clients, wedding clients break up and yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is what it is though, you know, yeah. like you're you're reserving a date and um I think it's super important that it's industry standard that you know that that's why these retainers are non-refundable and not everybody um not all vendors or photographers hold true to those those principles cuz I think we can Generally, I mean, we're in in this line of work. I feel like a lot of us are people pleasers, and we're in it for like the people and the relationships. And it's really easy to just, you know, refund in the face of like a difficult situation, which has its time and place too. But I think it's mm -hmm. it's important for, um, you know, to know and like come to terms with like why we value non-refundable retainers, why they're there, the overhead and like the cost of like running your business and why these things are important to, to stick to them. Yeah. Yeah. What advice do you have for, and I think this is something that, you know, as, as I've worked together and I'm working with the clients that I'm working with now, um, trying to find kind of the, like a fair balance when you're writing a contract where you feel like, your your business is protected, but the people you're working with are um, they also feel like it's a fair contract as well. Like finding that middle ground to where you know they understand everything, and it's not you know you're not writing a contract to where the client might feel like they might be getting themselves into something that if something does go wrong, they're just they're com <laughs> their hands are completely tied and yeah. they have no power at all ever. Uh, and so they in from a client perspective, I can see where they don't like. Um, or they also want protection if something goes wrong, you know, from the business side that they're mm -hmm. entering a contract with. So how do you find that middle ground for between business and client? 
Yeah. To where both both parties are happy and it's a good. So I I'm of the philosophy and the mindset that um, there needs to be more language built in around the business owner because there is so much discretion in how you run your business. So there needs to be more in place that gives you that latitude to run your business the way that you need to run it so that you can serve your clients well. And, you know, I think it's important too that the client knows that they can come to you with revisions or um, to meet in the middle with any discrepancies that they might want to resolve once they read through the contract. Um, I see in Facebook groups all the time that photographers will post and say, you know, red flag, the client came back with like 10 line items that they want to change. And I don't think that's a red flag. I think that's actually like a, a green flag or maybe it's a yellow flag. I don't know. Um, but like your client read your contract. They're interested in working with you enough to like give you feedback and they want to discuss the, cl- the contract. Um, and sometimes it's little things. Like I had a mother of the bride who was an attorney come to me and say, you know, I, I want to change a few things in the contract. And I was like, oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> this this can be like half a day of work. And she just wanted to change the late payment terms, which, you know, I've never charged a late payment in my life, even though it's in there. Um, she wanted to give it 30 days for any like post office delays instead of 14 or 15, mm-hmm. whatever it might've been I'm like, sure. No, no problem. Um, and making those changes and acknowledgements and working with the client also makes the rest of your client your contract show that you know they have fully assented to it they've read those terms like they have fully agreed to it there's no like coming there's you know I'm sure you have things in your contract that are super non-negotiable super important things that um, you, you can wiggle on some of some of the other points that maybe I don't know that, that you can be more flexible on mm-hmm. um, There's also a clause in, or there should be a clause in your contract that has a non-waiver, which means that you are not, um, you can go lighter essentially than what your contract allows you to enforce and you're not waiving all the rights of the rest of your contract. So if, for example, you do have this late payment fee and somebody is seven days late on payment and you don't charge that, that's okay. You're not waiving the rights to enforce all the rest of your contract. So I always tell my clients too, like, you know, our business is by word of mouth. We have a million reviews up there. Like we want our clients to be happy with us at the end of the day. Um, And we have a lot of latitude in place so that we can like cushion ourselves to do whatever we need to do to serve our clients well. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's why we're in this business. Contracts are always tricky because it's like, you know, a client comes to you and they're excited to work with you and like get the ball rolling. And then you give them like this thing that like, okay, now they have to turn like their logical brain on and turn the emotion off. Yeah. You have to go through this whole different mind shift. So getting them through that in a very seamless way to where then after, after it's done and signed, then they can get back, you can get back to kind of the emotional experience part of the client business relationship. Um, so having something you kind of get in and out of, but it's mm-hmm. still clear and it's not a million billion pages <laughs> seems pretty crucial. Yeah, that's true. So, 
What about uh, common issues you see coming up with like copyright laws? Because it seems like I've kind of run into this with photographers, whether it's maybe like their images are being used by their companies or their maybe even their clients are using Im- their images in ways that aren't um, mm-hmm. start kind of bordering on like uh, they're using it for maybe their business or something all of a sudden and not, not personal mm-hmm. use quite as much or things like that. So. Mm-hmm. How do you get into that a lot with photographers with copyright stuff and just usage agreements specifically? Yeah, definitely a lot of like licensing and usage. Um, I mean, as a general preface, the conversation, something that not everybody knows is copyright is something you don't have to file for. You own and have a copyright by simply creating an original work of art. So the second that you snap a photo or paint something and it's original, it's not something that you're duplicating or replicating, um, that that is yours. You own it and you own the copyright to it unless you are operating under a contract that states that it's a work for hire agreement and somebody else owns the copyright, which, you know, if you have like an associate team or if you, you know, have somebody that's, that's working under you, th- there may be um, stipulations in that contract that allow them to own the copyright for work that you're creating for them. Um, and then everything after, so say, you know, you're a photographer and you're hired to commission a project or do a wedding or a portrait series, um, everything after would go to the contract and how you're licensing the, the work that you've created to the client. Um, I worked on a lot of really interesting commercial photography contracts where, um, Essentially, in the commercial world, you know, you're, you're hire, you may hire the photographer for a day rate and production, and that might not include any of the usage. The usage might be separate, or they may include a license to 10 images that they're choosing. A lot of times when I'm creating a contract, I will call, um, include a total image buyout, So that can be like $150,000 for, you know, to buy all of the images for unlimited global use. And the way that you license those images, there's different value to it. And I had done a little bit of commercial work. Um, I worked in in the surf industry before law school and I had shot for like surfing magazine and billabong and um, like wetsuit companies and watch companies. And I had licensed images for specific uses. And you know, for example, if you're giving somebody the right to use an image on social media, it, it may be like a hundred or two hundred or five hundred or a thousand dollars in value, depending on, um, you know, the followers and the audience and like the size of the reach that the company is going to have. You may license it for like hang tags or for like a commercial building um, to be blown up on the side on the side of a billboard in New York City, and like that's going to have more value aligned to it. Um, And then there's unlimited global rights to use something, to publish something, to use it, you know, however they might see fit, whether it's like running an ad or, um, you know, a a marketing campaign in a magazine and giving somebody that latitude to use it for unlimited time or a certain number of years all has different value assigned to it. Yeah, that's there's a lot of wedding photographers, too, that I know that like that kind of getting jumping over to commercials like crazy because it's like a whole other 
mm-hmm. um, ball game, and then also just understanding like how do you even price yeah like, these usage things because it's not like there's not like a chart <laughs> you can yeah. reference. It's just all it's like just crazy. There are charts that um, yeah. well. It, it's really interesting. I mean, we can th- we could go down a rabbit hole right now, but yeah, I, <laughs> when yeah. I yeah, <laughs> there's like I know there's some charts, but like if you're a certain photographer, like it, you can just it can you're kind of could be off the chart essentially because of like who you are, or what the image is, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. So. Yeah, so I did my um, directed research in law school on Instagram and copyright issues, and I essentially used a chart of licensing. So how much you would license per the number of Instagram followers that a company has to correlate to what damages should be if you have to file a DMCA takedown to have an image removed that the copyright is being violated for online. Um, Because right now, like there is no set recourse. And I know a lot of photographers will send invoices to companies who use photos without their permission and you can file a a request with Instagram to get images removed or taken down from anywhere from Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, you know, whatever it might be. And they'll, you know, they're really good and quick to do it. Um, But then what do you do? Like the company's already gotten this value out of using your image once they've posted it. If it's been on their feed, like that's an instant value. It's if they're, you know, they're getting that on a feed for 12 hours, like they've already derived the value. And how do you get somebody to pay that invoice? So that just interest, it's, it's all very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I love all that. Yeah. Is that uh do you deal with a lot of clients that deal with that? Like the Instagram stuff. And it seems like some, they change their clause like a year ago or something where it's more business friendly for people to use your images off of, if you post it on Instagram or something. So the difference within, so you can't like repost or like screenshot, but you can embed, like you basically, when you post on Instagram, you give Instagram the, like the right to have that photo on that URL on Instagram. Mm. So somebody can embed, like that's basically what news Mm. articles and magazines will do. They will embed the Instagram link with your photo in there. So then they don't have to get your permission because they're like embedding the Instagram box. Right. You know what I mean? Like linking back to you or some. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Another one I think people run into a little bit is like, uh, especially for maybe like newer photographers or people that are like maybe coming up really quickly, successfully as a wedding photographers. And they kind of start getting into like NDAs when they're like high profile wedding clients or celebrity weddings and things like that. Do you have any advice around NDAs or anything? Yeah. So, um, I mean, NDAs, I feel like are kind of a hot topic right now because from what I've heard in California, it's cool to have an NDA over your wedding photos. So everybody requests it nowadays, like out in California. Non-disclosure agreement, just for clarity. Yes. Which (laughs) essentially means that the photographer and like the vendors and nobody can use the images unless they're specifically approved or like you get a certain number, like you can't, you can only use it. It it can all be carved out however you want to contract around it. Um, But I always like to tell photographers when somebody comes to you and is bringing up an NDA um, to give them some 
like big picture perspective around what that means that you then can't use those photos and the vendors who worked so hard. And at the level where somebody may be asking you to sign an NDA, you may be only taking a certain number of weddings per year. Um, so it's important, you know, how that client found you is from seeing your work. So it's important for you to like have that latitude to share, to share something from the day. So a lot of times photographers will charge for that NDA. Um, I've seen a percentage, I've seen a flat fee, um, but that kind of compensates for not being able to use that, that project or like the work that, that you're, that you're creating to further like promote and market yourself and, Mm. um, you know, show what, what you, what you're doing. Um, so I, I don't know. I always like to tell photographers to give like some clarity around, like they, they may not need like a full NDA unless they're a real like celebrity client or they have something that like maybe they're a doctor and they want to keep things more private. Um, and then if, if they do want to proceed with the NDA, then you would just add a line item for that and modify the contract to have that carve out in place, whatever it may be, whether it's not sharing photos of their faces or if it's not sharing any photos from the day or if they want to approve the photos that come out after the wedding, um, you can contract around that more specifically. I uh, would love to, for you to give a brief overview on like your contract templates you have on your site. I guess how just what, what have you created there? How can they help people? Where can people get them? Yeah, so um, I created a contract template shop. It's called The Artist's Lawyer. It's on theartistslawyer.com. And we have contract templates for all kinds of wedding vendors, um, all kinds of artists and creatives, um, specifically for photographers. We have, you know, your typical like wedding photography contract, portrait photography contract, commercial contract, um, cancellation and rescheduling agreements. Um, And we have other like guides and tools as well, like how to trademark your brand name and how to hire independent contractors, all those fun things second shooters and stuff I'm assuming yes I have I mean yeah. having a big associate team I have gone through the ringer with <laughs> all of the ins and outs of hiring a team so we have a very in-depth associate team and second shooter contract so all of that's in there I mean is a template like just as easy as like people purchase it and like they can just immediately like put their logo and their business name and it's good to go or is there yeah. any modifications that they need to review or yeah, you kind of just go through and update your business name and your state and, um, you know, your hourly rate. Like there's call outs for basically fill in the blanks. It's like an ad lib, you know, those or whatever they yeah. were. Um, right. Yeah. And you just go through, fill everything out. And it's it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I wish I had that when I started back in like the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I like nothing. Um where can people, what is the best way to people like connect with you and find you and engage with you? Yeah. Um, so I am on Instagram at Maggie Fisher, M-A-G-I-F-I-S-H-E-R. And you can find all the things on my website there too. It's just MaggieFisher.com. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome.